Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to The Shapes of Stories, a podcast with me, Lawrence Prestige, as your host. Stories come in all shapes and sizes, whether it be from our favourite books, our life experiences, or the day-to-day challenges and issues we face in the world today. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Shapes of Stories podcast with me, Lawrence Prestige. Um, Today I've got a really fascinating episode. Um, It's with my good friend, um, Andrew Keats. And Andrew Keats is a theatre director in London, um, very successful. but, you know, he, he's my friend, really. He's a, he's a good mate of mine. And um, I really had a great time chatting to him um, about all sorts of things. You know, I've known Andrew for a couple of years now, but it's the first time I've really kind of had the chance to sort of sit down and just have a really cool chat with him about his life, his career, um, his experiences in the theatre world, his, his experiences at drama school and, and university. And um, Andrew's very bravely come out and spoke about being HIV positive. And... Um, yeah, and it was really intriguing. And, you know, I learned a lot from Andrew speaking to him. And, um, you know, and I think it's really important that people hear his story about how how it was like growing up for him as someone that knew he was gay, um, as, as someone who got into theatre, his experience at drama school, like I said, and then, and then having that bombshell, I guess, to find out that he that he had HIV and how he's dealt with it and the the stigma, I suppose, that he still gets about it. And um, yeah, I, I really learned a lot from talking to Andrew and I really think it's something that people need to listen to. So without further ado, here is my chat with the wonderful Andrew Keats. And I'm glad to say he's a very good friend of mine. It's Andrew Keats. How are you, Andrew? I'm very good, Lawrence. How are you, mate? <laughs> I'm good. I thought I'd chuck a musical theatre reference in there for you. A bit of Calamity Jane. Well, you know, I, I, I've, I've got a little little few things to do in musical theatre, I suppose. I think i got the reference. <laughs> yeah. So, how, well, how have you been? I've been very good. I've been very good. Um, lockdown. It's a funny one, isn't it? Uh, mm-hmm. Or indeed, this, this, whole, this whole year. Um... I hate to say it, but it's. I found it really useful. I mean, there's a lot of terrible things about it, which I'm sure we can go into. Um, but I found this year really um, enlightening. I found it's given me loads of time to stop, to to take stock of who I am, what I'm doing with my life, where I want it to go. Um, and uh, I've been really grateful to the time. Um, on the other hand, I've also had to listen to my mum and sister, who are both nurses, and hear... The other side of of all those that it's not so nice a time, but um, as long as I don't think about what's in my bank balance, uh, I've been quite grateful uh, just to reset, and, and I'm really, really looking forward to when we can emerge from this and see what I can yeah. go on and do. How about you? I mean, you, I mean, you well, yeah, no, I, I, I've been okay. I, I think it's starting to get a bit better now. I, I think at the first time, I struggled with the first lockdown, I think, it, yeah, because when it was just so different, and then this time we kind of knew what the script was a little bit, we kind of knew what was going on. Uh, but I, I think it's more the fear of the unknown that's 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 the thing. Like, where are we going to be this time next year, for example? That, uh, that first lockdown, it's it's weird because I, um, 
when I talk to friends about it, I mean, the human race went insane, especially mm. especially my side of, of, of the career. Like, I just watched hundreds and hundreds of actors just putting their lives on social media. Um, you know, like, like a day didn't go by until somebody made a comedy video and somebody was sharing a poem. And it was just this desperate thing of going, you know, please, please, somebody notice me. Um, and now um, I, and I think people have relaxed into it a little bit and they're getting their heads down and, you know, they're, they're, they're doing all they can actually just to, like I said, to reflect and get to know themselves. But yeah. uh, it was insane. And I suppose the novelty's worn off. That's the thing. There was something novel about it. And and Zoom quizzes were cool. And now when somebody sends me an invitation for a Zoom quiz, uh, it just fills me with anxiety and rage. You just want to hide from everything yeah. until everything is back to normal or, or back to a new normal, as we're supposed to call it. Yeah, no, absolutely. But how, but how have you dealt with it? Because I know you're, you're usually really active in terms of getting out there theatre, you know, socialising and, and all that. Like, how, how have you sort of found it sort of, um, you know, dealing with that all? Do you know what? It's really funny you mention thinking of my, my social life. That's probably the thing that's changed most of all. Uh, when I said it's been really good to reflect, um, look, I, I work in show business and um, I have some extraordinary friends and some extraordinary colleagues. And, and I hope anybody that doesn't know me listening to this is going to think, oh, my God, what a pretentious dick. But the truth of the matter was is... Before this pandemic hit, yes, I was very, very busy with work, but I had a social life where every other night I would be in Soho and I'd be with actors and directors and producers and and I'd be up late and, you know, drinking and being bohemian and all this stuff. And I've been a lot less artistic. And, you know, when I sort of appeared in this industry back when I was, you know, 21, 22, in, in, in London especially, uh, I sort of, you sort of go into the theatre industry like a catapult and you're looking for the next, you know, who, who's the next great person to meet and collaborate with and where's the next cool place to go and what's the right clothes to wear. But actually, I was, I was more authentic back then. I was, I was more interested in what was the most enlightening play, what was the next fringe theatre I could get into and the artists I could see. And as my careers progressed, I found myself just wasting so much time on bullshit. And, um, you know, every night in private members' bars, paying for drinks that I can't afford and, and, and hanging out with people that just want to impress and impress and impress. And that side of my life, when I can you know, when this vaccine appears and when we can get back into a rhythm of, of, of a, a livable life again, I don't think my social life will be like that anymore um, because I'm getting older and I'm identifying what matters. And what matters to me is in my work being inspired, not impressed, spending time with friends that have been there that perhaps I haven't shown them enough enough time and enough attention and enough nurturing of their relationships because I've always known they're there. Um, and my family, you know, I, this has been an amazing reconnection with my family and and actually really enjoying just being Andrew, a guy who happens to work in the theatre, that's his lifeblood, rather than being Andrew Keats and going to the next great party and the next big opening night and hanging out with the next big name. Because I, I don't like that guy very much. And I think I'm, I was probably compensating to distract myself with some kind of feeling like I was successful. 
and actually I, I I've got so much more to do yeah no I understand that it sounds like this year's been a really big time for you to kind of reflect then like you had a lot of time to reflect yeah I mean, I, I, I live on my own, apart from my extraordinary cat, Toby, who anybody that follows me on Instagram will know my Instagram account is just dedicated <laughs> Toby to Toby Page, uh, my, my absolute everything. But um, yeah, I, I, I can't be the only one that, who, who does live on their own. I have, a, I have a chronic illness, which I'm sure we'll talk about later, um, which means I had to shield or I was advised to shield. And so it's just been me, the cat and my thoughts. And, um, and just to stop to make everything stop and I, I'm a creative person like like my makeup is I'm only happy when I'm making something um or I'm going through a process making something and then I can see something at the end and this lockdown's been all about you know going into recipe books again and mm-hmm. learning how to admittedly being broke so looking in my cupboard and going oh I've got an onion a courgette and some beans right uh how am I going to turn that into a meal and enjoying the satisfaction that comes from I hate to say simple pleasures but but it is from cooking from sitting down with a a pen and paper again from reading my favorite plays again to um to just just filling my life with creativity rather than the pretentious bullshit that I think a lot of us have in in show business for the want of a better phrase yeah, it's, it's interesting you say that as well. Like you sort of reflecting on your social life because, like, I've, I've been out with you a couple of times. You know, the, 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 the <laughs> yeah, I, one of the best nights I've had actually. It was a great way to see my thirtieth um, and the, in, with you. Um, but you, you do seem like to me, from someone that knows you, known you a couple of years, you seem in your your element there. You know, I, I think well, you know. But do you feel like you've kind of had the time to reflect to be like, you know, I'm not sure if that's me anymore. Um, look, I think it. <laughs> I think it all goes back to being gay, like everything in my life. Uh, And I'll tell you the why. I was having a conversation with uh, a group of girls, a group of really good girlfriends. And um, uh, one of the girls, uh, her boyfriend, walked in. And her boyfriend's quite a big guy, really big guy, very, very handsome. And uh, the moment he walked in, uh, because I've got quite a quick wit, um, I think I made a quip or something before this poor guy could even open his mouth. Mm-hmm. And he was sort of disarmed immediately. Um, and then, you know, jokes were going and conversation was happening. And as the night progressed, he said, why um, why did you make that joke the moment I walked in? And I answered him really honestly. I said, it's, it's a terrible habit I have, which is from being a gay guy, I have learned every time I walk into a room to identify every threat that is in the room. And a lot of girls, when I've spoken to women about this, they say, I have exactly the same thing. When I walk into a bar, I look at where's the trouble going to be. And if I identify trouble, I try to disarm it before it can attack me. And that simply comes from being a young gay kid um, who realised that the best way to stop a bully was to make them laugh or to make them know not to come for me. And I suppose that habit has, has, has formed into my adult life where... Um, by being just that little bit louder and that little bit quicker, it's a defence mechanism. Um, and, and lads call it banter, and I suppose that's what it is. But it is a defence shield, and I, I, I think in my life I, I can learn to be a little bit quieter and a little bit more content with being me rather than necessarily coming into a, you know, a room packed full of people that I know 
and spending an hour going, hello, darling, how are you, da 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 Actually, I can sit quietly with a good friend for an hour and a half and just acknowledge those people from afar. So yeah. I guess I'm growing up, Lawrence. You know, I'm, I'm, 30, <laughs> I'm 34, um, and, and the, the habits you learn from my industry aren't necessarily good for the soul. Um, even if they can be quite fun to do, uh, it's it's just enjoying a, a, a calmness, I suppose. Mm-hmm. No, 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 I get that. Do you, I mean, as a teenager, because like, I mean, obviously, like now, it's so much easier for people to sort of be open and do, you know come out and everything like that. But what was it like for you as a teenager? Because I guess you were sort of in that age where it was difficult to sort of be open about your sexuality and how you felt was that did you have to keep everything quite I know you've got very supportive family but like you know in terms of just like school and people like that was it hard did you have to feel like you had to put on that shield I suppose it's um that that time is is what defined me as a man really uh when I was at school we had a thing called Section 28. So anybody listening to this that doesn't know what Section 28 is, Section 28 was a, um, uh, a, a Tory policy for the non-promotion um, or endorsement of homosexuality um, as an acceptable uh, lifestyle. So gay boys and girls at school um, couldn't go to their teacher and say, I'm gay, and be supported. Uh, it's why I can never really forgive the Tor- I can never forgive the Tories for that past, mm. um, and I was. Th- this story really defines my whole life. Uh, my uh, I-, I sound like I'm very middle class, middle upper class. That's just lovely <laughs> training from drama school. I am originally from a council estate in Dorset, the Trickett's Cross uh, council estate, which is my mum would call is rough as ourselves, and. Um, uh, I I didn't see myself in television. I, I, there was nobody like me. If there was anybody that was gay on television, they were either, you know, slitting their wrists or they were flicking them. You know, they were either comedy or victims. So, and I didn't really have a, a father figure. I just had my single-parent mum on this, on this council estate. And so when I was looking for a role model, other than my amazing mum... I started to look in books and plays. And the gay stories that I started to read were plays like Bent by Martin Sherman, probably the most important one of the lot, um, as is by William M. Hoffman, uh, the, the works of Larry Kramer, Tennessee Williams, Noel Coward, Oscar Wilde was a huge part of my life growing up as a kid, De Profundis especially. And, um, you know, I, I, I joke often that a lot of a lot of gay kids keep things under their well straight kids do as well but gay kids keep a few things under their their bed they don't want their parents to find uh mine mine weren't magazines mine mine really were gay plays and it's absolutely true and all of those plays are on the bookshelf opposite me to this day with my my childish handwriting in but anyway um so one night i read this play bent by martin sherman and those who don't know it it's the story of two um it's a story of two gay men in Dachau concentration camp or labour camp. And uh, pretty much the second act of the play are these two guys falling in love whilst carrying rocks from one side of the stage to the other. And it was the first love story um, 
which which just spoke to me. It just absolutely spoke to me. And I was always fascinated with gay history as well. Um, the internet was quite new <laughs> then. So, um, you know, uh, I, I remember muffling my modem, my 56K modem, just trying to log on to gay sites and connect with other gay people, you know. Yeah. And um, anyway, I read this play, Bent, um, and I remember closing the play and deciding that night I had to come out to my mum. So I wrote her a letter, and it was about five o'clock in the morning, I think, and I went into her bedroom, I woke her up, I said, uh, I've got something to tell you, and she was like, oh, can't it wait till the morning? I was like, no, 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 no. Um, we went downstairs, and um, she read the letter, and, uh, yeah, she just put her arms around me, and she said, I still love you, can't go to bed. And... Um, that was when my, my life changed. That was when I was like... Because once that genie's out of the bottle, you can't put it back in. Mm-hmm. And um, anyway, so I came out at 13. Cut a long story short, because I could write a book about that. So yeah, once that, once that genie's out of the bottle, it's, it's, it's out. And so I eventually, um, I eventually came out of school. And, and that was when awful, awful abuse and bullying started to come into my my life i mean my my locker was graffitied on a weekly weekly basis um with all of the phrases that you can think of and worse mm-hmm. um but i was out you know i used to wear a little tiny triangle rainbow pin in the middle of my school tie um and every teacher dared mention it to me um, and then one day um because i was quite funny at school i you know i wasn't a class clown but i was very clever i was super intelligent um, which was great for the teachers, and I was very quick-witted, which was great for my, my classmates. And one day I was coming out of the science block or science slash maths block, and um, uh, this kid uh, just said faggot to me, and I saw red. And me being the teenager I was, I went, I might be a faggot, but you'll forever be a failure. Now... Yeah. It was at that point, I remember being punched in the face. I remember hitting the school playground. And I remember him kicking my head before I fell unconscious. Um, I remember uh, when he hit me, the gla- my glasses were smashed into my face. So I-, I thought I had a terrible... Fortunately, the scar didn't, didn't stay. But I-, I remember feeling blood on my face. Uh, and I remember somebody saying, all carefully, he's got AIDS. And this, I was a 13-year-old child, you know. Um, I woke up, uh, in, in hospital, um, being put in a CT scanner, had hematomas all over my face from, from how brutal the, the, the beating was. And, um, cut a long story short, uh, I was, I was in a bad way, but I, but I, I was, you know, recovered enough. And a week later, <clears throat> my mum asked what would be done with the student that had, that it clearly made, you know, been homophobic, but we had Section 28. So he was suspended for a week. And uh, my headmaster's my headmaster said to my mother, uh, Andrew um, is the first gay student we've ever had in the history of the school. Now, my, my, my high school had, what, 800 students? And had been around for nearly 20 years. So this is the level of ignorance that we were dealing with there. And he suggested that me and this student get in a room and talk it out. And my mum said, as if I am putting my son 
in a room with somebody that has just beaten the shit out of him, I think she said. And so it came to a real problem. What was I to do? I have no protection according to equality and diversity. That doesn't exist in schools. It's not allowed by the government. And so my mum, God bless her, she sought out an organisation called the Intercom Trust, which was an an organisation that was set up in defiance and and to ensure that that young gay children were looked after at school. And my mum and my school, uh, my mum and the Intercom Trust, an amazing man called Dr Michael Halls, met with me and... um, Oh, God, uh, to to be a child and, and to have a, an educated doctor in front of you and say, Andrew, tell me about school and everything you're going through is common and you're not in the wrong was inspiring. He he inspired me and a lot of my, my work in various other sectors comes from that moment. And we fought the school and, and my mum fought and said he should be expelled. Um, and he wasn't expelled in the end. In the end, he ended up being put on a sort of work placement program because he wanted to be a mechanic and that way he actually got the best of it I finished school um but realized that I couldn't I couldn't learn in that environment and I went to an amazing place called Brockenhurst College in the New Forest um which was full of life's rebels and reprobates it was full of stoners it was full of the poets it was full of the rappers it was full of the actors it was full of everyone who wanted to do public services and we i studied philosophy and english literature and religious studies and and drama obviously and i was involved and i was in this environment where to be diverse was to be expected and to question was normal um and i thrived and i put on productions and got involved in the student hustings and went to Paris and um, experimented with drugs and I did all the things I, that I, I don't regret at all. Um, and I could just be. And then sadly, in the second year of my college, I got on a bus um, in this wonderful place. Uh, and uh, again, um, a, a new student got on, a really intimidating guy, uh, I always sat at the back of the bus with all the naughty kids and we were laughing and joking and this guy couldn't... He had sadly had um, mental health issues, but he couldn't understand how a gay person could have friends and how they, and he couldn't... I shouldn't be happy. And um, another attack happened. Um, and I thought, this was what life was like, really, isn't it? You know, I'll be happy for a bit and then I'll meet someone who, who you know, doesn't like me being gay and then I'll be beaten up and then... Uh, you know, eventually the wounds will heal and then I'll meet somebody and I'll meet somebody and, and this is what it was always going to be like. And, and cut a long story short, he I worked in an old bookstore at the time, Borders in Bournemouth, if anyone remembers Borders, um, and he turned up at my place of work. And um, and so, yeah, I, in Borders, uh, he started to turn up at my place of work and he started to turn up uh, outside my home meaning that as a teenager, I then ended up with something called a safe link phone and what was then called a laglo officer, a lesbian and gay liaison officer. Um, and it ended up with a threat on my life. Um, and this is as a teenager. Teenagers shouldn't have to worry about this kind of thing just because, um, just because they're gay. And then eventually, <laughs> eventually, it won't shock anybody, uh, it, I graduated, I, yeah, I finished my A-levels, Unfortunately, got to go to drama school and things got better. And that is why I live in London. That is why, you know, yes, Bournemouth is a great place and it's got a lot better. But but London is my city because it's diverse. I can love who I like, with who I like. And 
And I thought everything would be over then. I thought, great, uh, cool, I can be myself and, and everything's lovely. And, um, and then you get diagnosed of HIV. And then you realise that the gay community, as it were, this lovely, you know, the way it's portrayed, this lovely, loving, all-welcoming community, the scene, as it were, um, is not necessarily as, as, as kind as it could be for people with HIV. So yeah. I found myself in lots of different tribes. Um, and it is from that being unable to identify, being unable to be safe within a group has, of course, made me be an artist and look at why we express the way we are. What is our place in life? What is our place within ourselves? That's why I tell stories, and it's why so much of my work is about telling the stories and understanding those who are underrepresented in society. Mm -hmm. Because I've just spent my life feeling that way, even though I'm a Caucasian guy. Yeah. yeah. Do, you, I mean, do you think for, for, for teenagers at schools now, it's getting more acceptable and people are more accepting of others and, and better? Because I even remember being at school where gay, the word gay just got thrown around as a, as a general insult. I remember I, I used to like McFly. And I used to go, yeah, and you know, I'm just a straight guy. I used to love the band McFly. And um, I got ripped for liking McFly by these lads. And I'd, I'd used to have to put a, the Red Hot Chili uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers album and put the McFly CD in it, just so they thought I was listening to that. And I'd be like, oh, McFly are gay. You can't like McFly. But it's, it's just a word that just seemed to get branded around. Anything that was just seemed a bit not following the trend or the norm was, was a gay, you know, you were gay. and Yeah, I never, I never let it pass, even with mates. Uh, I never let that pass. Um, you know, because they would say, oh, I don't mean it like that. And I go, okay, well, yeah. can, can you tell me another, can you tell me another slur that you don't really mean that you use? You know, there's, 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 an, there's an amazing, um, there's an amazing comedian. Uh, I forget who said this and I wish I could, I could um, say who said it. But there's a great, um, uh, Asian comedian who said uh, we, we didn't have a problem with you calling our stores packy stores, we had a problem when you started using the word fucking beforehand and, this, and, and, and the problem is, is it's the same is true with, with using gay as a derogatory term you know, because immediately then I am lesser than you, I am other I am beneath and you know as a writer better than anybody, people say sticks and stones may break my bones but, but names will never hurt me they do hurt. And more importantly, they shape society. You know, if, you know, we use the term foreigner and for some reason now that, that, that someone makes someone lesser. You know, we talk about asylum seekers and suddenly they are lesser. When we're all human beings, we're all just trying to get by. <laughs> we're all just trying to get, you know, born, live our lives, die. There's the bit in the middle and anything that makes that harder for a human being is clearly cruel. Um... <laughs> Being gay is not an insult. Um, if anything, it's a damn badge of honour because when you're born in this world, you are born with the expectation that you will be straight and Christian, pretty much. Um, and anybody that isn't that um, seems to sort of have to appease their lifestyle to those that are because of the majority. And, you know, to come out is still hard. You know, there are still endless reasons why I think people still struggle with... Uh, being open about their sexuality that can be for religious reasons that can be the way that things are perceived that can be because the only time they've ever heard the word gay is when it's derogatory on the playground mm. and that wasn't a good thing you know who wants to be something that all your mates think is stupid um and 
you know, it, it, it's, it's why we've got to be careful with our language. And some people say, you know, uh, the snowflake generation. Um, yeah. You know, it's, it's not. It's really just people who are asking for common courtesy and respect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, even, even the other day, I had one of my mates, he was um, in the supermarket, and he had people sort of getting a bit crazy and stuff because of the lockdown again, and, you know, sort of, you know, just, uh, just following the certain route round the shop and everything like this. And, and, he, he, and he was saying to me, you know, I, I'm getting, getting a bit frustrated with people. People are just, when there's stuff going on like this, people are getting a bit nasty, a bit frustrated, and he's starting to get a bit... You know, he, and then he, then he said something like, I just wish people would be a bit nicer. And then he goes, oh, sorry, that sounds a bit gay, doesn't it? And I was, and I was like, why are you apologising? Why are you apologising for saying things should be nicer? But then it was just, why, why is that gay? <laughs> yeah. Uh... <laughs> I mean, it's it, it's it's so silly, and and I would hope with like with everything that has been everything that I've done on this earth, I really hope that like the thing that defines me as a human being is not what I do with my dick. Like, come on, like there, there, there is more to me than that, and there is more to people than their color, and there's more to people based on their religion. Like, it's just mutual respect and. You know, it is it easier? Yes. But is it still hard? Yes. Um, I mean, for example, I'll give you a good example. Um, w- with all the HIV campaigning that I've done, t- today, World, World AIDS Day of all, of all, all times, <laughs> the amount of times that I... And I have a lot of friends who lived through the 80s and the 90s um, and lost out so much to that, that, that those horrendous times. Um, when I've been campaigning about HIV awareness, quite... <laughs> Almost naively, you know, the older generation will say, why did we go through all that just so you've got all these twinks now that will do whatever they want? And I always correct and I always say, you must never condemn the younger generation for not living through that time because they didn't. And everything you went through was to enable that freedom today. And it's really important just to sometimes get a, get a, you know, look at your compass and see where we are. And actually... You're saying it's better today. I mean, just look at Twitter and search for the word gay and see how people are using it. Search for the word faggot. Search for the word queer. Um, You know, we... Frighteningly so. And this is not just in regards to homosexuality. This is in regards to, to anybody that isn't a societal norm. We have become so terrifyingly polarized that... You know, uh, that the, the right wing um, values are becoming really quite frightening and dangerous. And, you know, I've lost count how many times I've had to look at the picture of lesbians or gay men in their teens with bloodied faces because they were walking up Clapham High Street or there were two girls recently on a bus, you know, who were beaten because they because of the way that homosexuality is badly taught, if taught at all. So we've got to be careful about saying things are better because actually we've got to get better education in schools. You know, as, as a children's author, you'll, you'll probably have come across Ollie Pike, for example. You know Ollie? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like... Ollie, no, 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 his work, yeah, yeah. Like Ollie's a uh, lovely guy, just a lovely guy. I'm sorry to plug another children's author on your book. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. They all come on. Just the, be- <laughs> just the beautiful thing of, of telling a fairy tale between two princes. I mean, saying that out loud almost it gets me extremely emotional. Because the idea of, of being eight years old with a book like that, 
um, could have helped me feel less shame than I have today. And I will have that shame for the rest of my life. And Jesus, I've spent enough on therapy to try and get rid of it. But it runs deep. Mm-hmm. And it's taught me to fight. And, 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 and great organisations of the past to do with LGBT history, the great ACT UP, for example, they realised that being eloquent and passionate wasn't enough to change things. You needed to be angry. And I have that anger and I feed off that anger and hopefully try and, inter- and try and bring it out in eloquence. But I'm angry when I see kids beaten up. I'm angry when I'm, when I'm trying to buy that sack of potatoes and I hear someone refer to being nice as gay because it doesn't make any sense. So when you were saying then about being eight years, you know, eight year, eight year olds being able to read books and, you know, identify with them. When you were eight, did, did you have those feelings of, you know, you knew you were gay at eight or did you? Yeah, yeah. this yeah, is yeah, such absolutely. a good question because no one, everyone's always frightened to ask it because it's weird. Talking yeah. about kids and sexuality is fundamentally weird. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember, <laughs> I remember we had a weird thing in first school. This is like, like years one to four. And I remember for PE, we used to get changed behind our chairs, right? And I remember, um, as, a, as we do as kids, you know, our bodies are going through all sorts of changes and, oh, he's got one of those and, oh, she's got that, you know, and all those things we do as kids. But I always remember thinking, um, and if I take my head to that childish place, I remember always thinking um, that... Uh, David Simmons, that was it. <clears throat> if David Simmons is listening to this, uh, I apologise. Uh, <clears throat> I always remember thinking that David Simmons... <clears throat> I always remember thinking that David Simmons was prettier than the girls. I was like, he's so pretty. Oh, but that's not right. That's not right, because girls are meant to be pretty, right? And, and then that develops as life goes on. You know, and... Uh, yeah, it goes from... All the same feelings you have when your hormones are up and down. You know, boys that I liked that would look me in the eyes and almost not being able to speak in the same way that guys have with girls when there's that that girl who seems to have an aura around them. You can't even make eye contact because your body is saying, you know, I I think I'm in love with you, whatever love is. Um, No different to when I was in, you know, in my, my, my later teens and getting changed and in the changing rooms and... And and just going, God, I... And when you're becoming... Having your spring awakening, when you're, you're sexually aware. And actually, at school, it's even worse because you are in changing rooms and you are playing sports and dramas and doing productions. And all of the things that, that you're attracted to are there in front of you, but you can't say anything. Um, so, yeah, I suppose it's like asking a straight person back when you're at high school to get changed in the girls' changing room. And not to feel, not to feel awkward, yeah. <laughs> um, and and we don't. And, and as, as Brits, we don't we don't talk about that. And then, but what comes with that is a repressed sexuality. That then, and I've heard this from friends who have come out in later life, after school, after college, after university. Well, then you have from the starvation of just experimenting in relationships, which you do from school. You know, I remember friends when they were eight being like, "That's my girlfriend." From there on, you're practicing your relationship. Um, gay people don't have that, 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 that opportunity. It's only when we come out, and often that can be in our 20s, you know, uh, that we then make up for it. 
mm-hmm. and that is where uh, a lot of gay people can um, overcompensate and actually go too far and end up, you know, just sleeping with anything that moves, um, taking drugs, getting involved in alcohol, because essentially you're living all the things you did as a teenager finally as you are, but with money. <laughs> and and that's why a lot of people can go go crazy because and this is why things like relationship education is so vital in in our schools. Um, Absolutely. Because how else do you practice? You mm-hmm. know, and it's it, it and when you understand that, it's literally like coming out with with, with a catapult. Yeah, I, f- I think it's important. You know that you that you can say at eight years old I had this this acknowledgement that that I felt that because I think some people are quite ignorant to think oh well An- Andrew works in the art so of course he's gay but you know but the fact that <laughs> the fact you were a, you know a, you know some of my, my mates would probably think that they think if you're in that kind of environment you know that you, you usually performing artists tend to be homosexuals and you know that is the case but that doesn't necessarily mean that you were having that those feelings when you started in that industry you were having them at eight years old no absolutely but actually what what we're getting onto now is is gender you know what is it to be a man or you know it, it it's that old-fashioned thing isn't it you know oh god he he looks after himself he's kind he's eloquent with a good education god he couldn't possibly be a heterosexual you know <laughs> it, it's um and and i think we're getting better i think guys can be friendly and kind and you know heaven forbid use use moisturizer and hair products and, and still not be thought to you know take it up the ass um but you know like it's just stupid stereotypes that we're taught about what it is to be a man what it is to be a woman and there are just as many negative stereotypes about how women should be as there are about how men should be and i would hope that good educators and there are good educators out there because i've met them um who you know if just to allow children to play and and this is where acting really comes into it uh, Declan Donnellan, the, the author, writes about this in The Actor and the Target, where he talks about acting not being second nature, but first nature. Because our first experience of theatre is often in the game of peekaboo, where we have that moment where somebody appears and then they disappear and we suspend disbelief. Oh, my God, is mum going to come back? Is grand going to come back? Is my guardian going to come back? Oh, my God, they're back! Peekaboo, yes! And in that moment, you experience theatre. But when you're a kid and you've got you know, you, you see one of your friends in the playground fall over and graze their knee. Well, then you play the mother because you've seen a way a mum works. Or when someone's wrong, you might impersonate your dad or your mother in my case. Um, and, and we learn through impersonation and taking on roles, which is why acting is our first nature. And that comes from peekaboo, that comes from now you see me, now you don't, to running around the field. Play, I remember I used to play armies, believe it or not, back in a darker day. You know, um, as things we see on television, oh, we'll act out in the playground, see what that's like. What does that feel like? What are these emotions? And anything that gets in the way of that play is getting in, is getting in the way of, of, of kids understanding how life works, um, and, uh, and, and, that's, and that's why I think I naturally have a playful side, and I enjoy performing, and I enjoy listening, I enjoy taking in stories, because my whole life I've been developing empathy, you know, to, because I have always had feelings, because I've been so acutely aware of them, because I've been made to feel like I shouldn't matter. 
Yeah. And, and the ability to question yourself and the world around you immediately, I think, gives us an empathy. And that's why I think you do find, you know, a larger amount of gay people in the arts. A, because we recognise there are other people like us and that's a safer place to be. But also we've spent our life being told we can't express ourselves. So when we can, we want to do it on the bloody palladium, <laughs> you know. <laughs> what a way to do it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, did, so was, was, was it always direct, direct and few that you were interested in? Because I know you went to Guildford School of Acting. Did you think, oh, perhaps I want to be on, in theatre and act? Or was it always like, no, I really had a passion for directing? Well, it's a little bit like, I suppose it's a little bit like a writer in that, you know, you, you discover you're a writer through other people's books. Um, for me, there was no such thing as a director's course as such. I just knew I loved the rehearsal room. That was the thing. The rehearsal room for me was just anything was possible. You know, I, I remember the first time somebody put a chair down in the middle of the room and said, right, you're on top of Mount Everest. And, and just the magic of that, the magic um, of anything is possible in the theatre and it's often achieved via magic. Um, and um, for me, I I was quite good on stage. Pardon my lack of humility, but as an actor, I was... I don't doubt it. I don't doubt it at all, Andrew. I was, I was good <laughs> on stage, but oh, it was sort of the more I did it, A, the more I realised there were people who were better. Um, but secondly, I was always more interested in what the director was saying than sometimes what my fellow actors were doing. So... Um, Drama school was amazing. I was more, in, I was inspired by facilitators. I was inspired by the people who were able to ask a question because I had such respect for them because they'd helped me. And I wanted to be that guy. And I wanted to facilitate that room where anything was possible. And I wanted to facilitate, you know, helping a performer find some discipline so they could be better. I suppose that comes from my own innate want to be better. Um, but I also loved that fundamentally it was down... I like responsibility, um, and it was down to me to to make it happen. That thrill, I suppose. Um, so, because there was no such thing as um, there was no such thing as as directors' courses, uh, I also went to Brockenhurst, as I mentioned. And the first drama school I went to was the Mountview Academy of Theatre Arts. I was there for a year, um, and rather sadly, um, my nan passed away. She had cancer of the brain. She she died over over a whole year. And I was under extremely intensive training. And I was also in a relationship for the first time with a man that I loved. Um, and my mental health was... Um, I was very poorly. Uh, I felt like in a year I had lost everything. My, um, I was with a man who couldn't say he loved me. Uh, and I've only later discovered through, through a lot of therapy I had after the time that when I was telling people my nan was dying, nobody was sort of responding in the way that I thought they should. It's only through therapy I realised that my nan was essentially my mum and my mum essentially for the role of a dad. And, and that gave me such comfort. And when she died, um, I, I lost my mother, even though I called her nan. And I had a total emotional, a total emotional breakdown. Um, I attempted suicide twice when I was at drama school. I felt like everything I'd loved in the theatre had gone. <clears throat> I felt that I wasn't good enough. I felt like all my family were gone. Uh, and the man that I loved the most, uh, and I put him through hell at the end, and we still have never spoken to this day, and it's the, 
it's an abs- it's my my greatest tragedy and every year I'll send something and never hear anything back and that gives you an idea of how ill I was um and then after a final suicide attempt uh I left Mountview I lived with some drag queens in Brighton for a bit um who sort of taught me to laugh again and I got some help and then a year later I went to the Guildford School of Acting and I started again um and you know i wasn't perfect at gsa and but i was i i just had a lot of trauma in an earlier age that mm-hmm. i suppose has given me a i always like to describe it like the more events in your life it sort of helps with your emotional contrast in life and because i've experienced losing everything i mean i i i would almost howl at night um i re- i'm an atheist and i remember praying you know just desperate for life to get better um so i've been to the very depths almost an allusion to oscar wilde's day profundus again um but i've been to the very depths and i've come out of it and i think it gives you an understanding of how cruel and how majestic life can be that actually when i'm working with performers who may not necessarily have experienced that to help enrich their imagination to understand their characters who are going through that because any great play or any great story or any great you know musical whatever uh, tends to be about something that isn't pedestrian mm-hmm. and bringing insight to that that is not autobiographical i want to make that really clear that isn't oh let me tell you about that time i lost everything but it is about helping setting up the circumstances to understand life's great challenges and questions and i've experienced probably too far too many of those far at a far too younger age which yes has given me an you know a maturity but has also given me a, an insight that that is in all of my work in in some way or another so i suppose you could say <laughs> that all the bullying the sexuality the pain i sort of owe everything to because without it i would have probably got a lovely job somewhere um you know we're happily working 9 to 5 because i wouldn't know any different other than getting the bills and having a happy everyday life well, your your experience at drama school like is that in that because i've heard from a few people at drama school it is very intense and do you almost feel do you almost feel like you you need some kind of therapy just from going into drama school because uh, you know from especially with women i don't know what it's like for guys in particular but especially some women i know that have been in drama schools they they are like emotionally and mentally scarred by their experiences at drama school yeah I have a love-hate relationship um, with both of my drama schools. I went to both Mountview, both Guildford have been very vocal about this. Um, When I went to drama school, there was, um, without question, members of staff at the Guildford School of Acting um, who were abusive to students. End of story. Um, There were people in positions of power that absolutely should not have been. Um, And there was a... uh, And this is historic, I believe it's better... Um, there was absolutely abuse going on in our drama schools from people in power um, to young, impressionable, I want to say kids, because we were. Um, There was one particular member of staff um, who uh, I will never forgive for his conduct as somebody who owed me a duty of care. Um, But because I was a bit older and because of all the stuff I'd been through, I called him out. And he then tried to deal with me through formal disciplinary sanctions at school and I have since spoken to members of staff about this and I've and I have said 
you had a duty of care and you didn't keep me safe. And I told you time and time again. And I've made peace with that. But I think anybody that comes in to teach acting and they're going to break you down and they're going to do this is just not a good educator. Um, you know, th the arts do... The arts sort of have a an historic link with the military. If you notice a lot of our terms like call sheets, you know, um, calls and... Um, it, it, television has the same. There's, there's a lot of old military disciplinary terms. And you do need discipline in arts, otherwise it's just chaos. But educators need to enable students to fail. Um, and they also need to realise that... They are not therapists, you know, they're, they're, they're arts educators. And yes, it is important to connect with your authentic self, but it's also very important to give them strategies to, you know, we give each other, to, to come out of it. I'll give you a good example. Um, th there's been certain roles I played when I was younger, you know, and you'd come straight off stage after, you know, being brutally murdered or, or attacked or so in something. And then you'd go, just go straight to the pub with the cast and have a beer. Um, or some people just go straight home. You need to almost close down your emotional satellite a little bit because the, 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 the body can't tell the difference between imagined emotion and real emotion. So you need to tell your body everything's OK and you're safe again. And it's very difficult if you've had a teacher that has, you know, been talking about your trauma as a kid and then the bell goes and then you're sent off to the next class to do ballet. Your body's still holding on to that trauma. And it's very important. You know, we're living, breathing things. We're not computers. And there are terrible teachers at drama school. Um, and there are some people that are in those positions, I think, in my experience, um, because they've got mortgages to pay and they couldn't care less, really, about the students. But conversely, a lot of the people who were not like that, who were extraordinary on the other side. The most wonderful thing is as a, a student who had his difficulties at drama school because of things that should not have happened to me, um, nearly all of those teachers who were inspiring and found time for me, I have since employed um, as their boss <laughs> um at, well I say boss we've collaborated and whenever I see them uh there is a really there is an honest love because they've seen me as a as a very broken teenager who just wanted to work in the theatre and now you know they, they've worked with me on West End shows or or things that we're really proud of so if you if you are an educator and you are all about power perhaps consider a longer-term investment in your students because you never know the opportunities you could be losing out on by encouraging them rather than endlessly disciplining them. And when you started um, directing, one of the plays that you did was, we recorded this on World AIDS Day, you know, as we're, as we're recording this, and uh, one of the first plays, one of your um, plays that you did a few years ago was about AIDS, wasn't it? About, I can't remember the name of the play exactly, but you directed it. I know you're someone that's come out and spoke about your diagnosis. Was that before that you found out that you had um, HIV or was it just after? Or? This, is, this, is, um, this is the most unbelievable story, but it's totally true. Yeah, I, I was doing a play called As Is and it was by William M. Hoffman, which you'll remember I said I kept plays under my bed. As Is was one of them. Indeed, it was one of the speeches from As Is that got me into drama school. Um... And subsequently, I would say that I have worked already, I've worked with 
all of my heroes as a kid. I've already worked with them, and that is an extraordinary thing. Writers, actors, um, some of them are still in my life. Some of them I got to work with before they passed away. Bill Hoffman was one of them who wrote As Is. As Is was the first AIDS play, AIDS, commercial AIDS play, and it was a comedy. And actually, comedy is a great way to deal with issues, because if people are laughing, they're listening. And I loved this play. God, I loved this play. Um, and indeed, when I said about Bent um, and Martin Sherman, the first play that I did when I came to London was Bent. I did it twice. Um, and Martin very much became, has become a, a mentor in my life, and we communicate a lot. Um, and, and to think the man who wrote that play when I was, thir- you know, I read when I was 13, helped me come out, is now, is a few names underneath yours in WhatsApp at the moment, is just, he's, he's my Shakespeare, he's my Tennessee Williams, he is my, my Oscar Wilde. Um, but yes, I did do As Is, As Is I wanted to do. I remember just constantly reading about escalating HIV um, levels in London in particular with young gay men. I was, I started to have the thought, I was like, have we already forgotten? Have we already forgotten about the AIDS epidemic? Um, and I was like, oh my God, now's a great time to do as is. And I did a production of it um, at the Fimbra Theatre, 50 seat Fimbra Theatre. And it did, it did really well. And I had an agreement with my cast and creative team on day one of rehearsal. Um, I said, right, I'm, I'm going to pact with you all. We are telling the story of a, of a lost generation, but we've also got an obligation to the audience that we are telling the story to. I would like every single member of the cast and production team to have an HIV test between now and the end of the run. And as the uh, weeks would go on, I would start noticing little um, circular plasters where people had done it. And it was a lovely thing. It wasn't... They didn't come over and go, look, I cut my HIV test. Like, there'd be moments when I'd be rehearsing and I'd see a sleeve come up and a cast member would give me a wink or something. And I'd smile. And it was a lovely, unspoken thing. Anyway, um, the show finished um, at the Finborough, that, that is. And uh, as you'll know with your experience of theatre, um, there's nothing more miserable on a closing night um, for for the production team because the cast will go out and get pissed and we all end up taking the set down and and getting rid of props and reorganising costumes and getting the theatre back to how it was when we arrived. So me and my co-producer at the time, wonderful man called Andrew Harmer, um, he would throw a barbecue for after the the show, like a couple of days after on the Sunday. Um, And this barbecue would be an opportunity for everybody to get together you know, have a sausage or a lasagna or whatever and um, have a few drinks and we could all be together and, uh, you know, and speeches and say until next we meet. Anyway, it got to the Sunday and it just occurred to me because I was producing, I was directing, I was artistic director of the company. Uh, I was like, fuck, you hypocrite. You're the only person that hasn't had this HIV test. <laughs> and, I, and that would not do. I was like, that would not do. So to exactly where it was, because I googled and I needed a sexual health clinic that was open on a Sunday. And the only one I could get to was in Southwark. And I remember I was in a suit, because uh, I was going on to this barbecue, and it was first thing in the morning, and I got to s- travel all the way to Southwark from where I lived in Wimbledon, I think it was. Uh, and um, I remember getting in the queue, and there were people... 
I, the, the first thing I remember was this overwhelming smell of vodka Red Bull. Every, <laughs> like everyone in that queue had not been home, clearly. And there were people still high from the night before. There were people, you know, awkwardly scratching themselves. And, oh, I felt so superior. Me in my pressed grey suit, you know, ready to go and see my cast. Um, and uh, eventually I went in, saw this nurse. And uh, I remember vividly, I've told this story so many times, I remember vividly this nurse looked like Paul Hollywood from The Great British Bake Off, which was weird. And... Um, it's weird. Whenever I'm in moments of where I'm nervous, it's weird. I can either, I can get into a sort of flirtatious mood. So I'm sort of, I've got this weird thing that I'm, you know, flirting a little bit because everything's going to be fine, isn't it? With this Paul Hollywood looking like nurse. And uh, he asked me how many sexual partners I'd had. And I responded like many a gay man will. I have no idea. Um, and eventually the chat, you know, ended. And I was sat on what felt like a barber's chair. Um... And he said, I'm just going to take uh, a little bit of blood. And he had what looked like a contact lens pot. And he would put like a couple of droplets in this, this, this little pot of solution. It's called a rapid HIV test, which you can have now. You can find out your HIV status within 60 seconds. And um, we, where I was saying I was flirting, there was a bantery thing between us. And he did that. And then I noticed the banter stopped. Um, and there was silence. And at that time, I, I didn't enjoy the silence very much. And I just said, <laughs> it's not positive, is it? And, and that's when, mm. oh, I can feel it now. That's when he put he, he had this massive paw on my shoulder. Um, and I looked up, looked at him and he just said, it is, mate, and, and we're going to look after you. And that's, and you'll notice I struggle to remember detail because it was in that moment that, that I went into, into shock. Um, I just remember the room looking like Kubrick's sort of camera angle, you know, where everything sort of pulls back. You see it in Jaws as well, you know. And then I just remember being led from one room to see somebody for more bloods. And then I was in another room and then I was sat somewhere else. And I sort of remember... I can't even tell you what her face looks like. Um, I remember being with a doctor and saying, um, how long have I had it? And I had in my head, there's a thing called PEP, which if it's, if it's taken within 24 hours of being with somebody with HIV, um, it can destroy the virus. And I said, can we try PEP? And she said, Andrew, um, you've had HIV for quite some time. Um, you, in your lifetime, you, you will not be HIV negative again. Um, I remember her saying that, but I can't remember her face because of the shock. And then I remember filling in paperwork and I said, well, what, what, what do we do now? Do I get pills or something? Um, and she said, no, 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 you'll um, have an outpatient appointment in like six weeks. Because um, in your mind, you're like, well, I've got it, right, we've got to do something about that. It was mm. like, oh, we've got an appointment in six weeks. At six, six weeks, yeah. Six, what do I do? So I went to, it was at St. Thomas's Hospital, but I remember, more importantly, I came out of that as the guy that was smelling the vodka Red Bull and thinking so sharp in his suit. I came out and it was a really hot, sunny day. Um, and I just, I remember wanting everybody in the street, wanting them to stop. Um, but the world goes around, you know. And then um, I had to phone uh, I phoned a couple of people I'd been with 
saying I, I've just found out Matrix will be positive, and one particular person screamed at me, um, how dare you do this to me? I didn't know. <laughs> I didn't think I was HIV positive. Um, and uh, anyway, so being a director, you never imagine you cast. So got on a bus and found myself in uh, Clapham Junction, which is where Andrew lived. I got to the front door, knocked. Like, here is Hoover was going and knocking on the fucking door. And um, he opened uh, opened it and he went, oh, Andrew, you're here. Uh, I've got the lasagna. I remember he was always going on about the bloody lasagna. So the lasagna's in the <laughs> oven. Um, I said, I, 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 I need to talk to you. Um, he went, oh, well, oh, I'm just a bit worried about the lasagna. I said, Andrew, can you just take me somewhere? I, I need to talk to somebody. And we went up to his, um, uh, he's got a wonderful townhouse. We went to the top floor. And that was when I tried to say the words for the first time. And I tried to say, Andrew, I'm... HIV positive and I couldn't form the H in my throat it's the first time I'd ever experienced that I couldn't say it and he just said I'm sorry he said you want to go and I said no and it was a bit like that moment in love actually I just sort of had a cry in the bedroom dried my eyes <laughs> big breath like with Emma Thompson and I went Emma out Thompson moment, yeah. it really was it was exactly the same <laughs> exactly the same moment just probably not as nicely acted it was real and um, I went down and did that performative stuff you said you see me do. And uh, had a glass of champagne. And there was one actress, wonderful Anna Tierney, daughter of the great Malcolm Tierney from Lovejoy and such like. And um, she said, do you think anyone got tested in you and found out they were positive? And all I could do was look at her in those beautiful eyes she had and say, I, I know they did. And then, and I know this is such a long story, but cut ahead with the, the story I told you about being gay, I've, I've always been taught never to be ashamed of who I am. And so I, I, was, I had a real conflict here. I'm HIV positive. Why am I not owning it? You've owned everything else in your life. And the reason being was because I've also spent a life growing up on the gay scene and being in the gay community in Bournemouth. I owe still probably still being here thanks to gay pubs and bars because it was the only part of my life where I could be myself. But the problem is, is I also heard all the jokes that were told by other gay people. You know, careful of her, she's got AIDS. Oh, she's thin, got to touch the riddle. I'd heard it all. Gay men were frightened of people with HIV. End of story. Uh, the gay scene is based upon three things, drugs, sex and alcohol. And anything that gets in the way of those three things, the gay scene is not a big fan. Um, because it's fundamentally how those businesses work. Anyway, um... There was a charity that I was working with. I used to help them get celebrities and things to, to their, their World AIDS Day events. Uh, sorry, for their musical theatre events. And I said to the then chairman, David, he said, oh, so are we going to have this year? And I said, I have something, I have something I'd like to give you. Um, and it's the most personal thing I can give. And he said, what's that? I said, um, David, I'm, I, I'm HIV positive now. And he went, okay. Uh, I said, we have an event coming up at the Dominion Theatre. It's called West End Eurovision. It's basically every West End cast performing West End, uh, performing Eurovision songs. Uh, and it was great. They were great nights. I was performing Eurovision uh, songs, every cast in the West End, uh, to raise money for this, this um, HIV AIDS charity. And um, I said, I will come out on stage as a as a face, a recognisable face in this industry. 
I'm not, you know, I'm not a pretty dancer. <laughs> you know, I'm not, a, I'm not a dashing leading man. You know, I'm a slightly Disney mouse looking director. And if I can get it, so can anybody else. Um, so in front of, I think it's 5,000 people. I can never, I never get the number right. Uh, at the Dominion Theatre, where We Will Rock You was playing underneath the statue of Freddie Mercury, uh, I, I did a speech um, to my industry that I never thought I would ever be HIV positive. And it sent a ripple throughout the industry. I'm so proud of it because we made sure it was recorded. The whole point of doing it was record it, A, for the audience, but secondly, to get out on social media. Theatre director Andrew Keats has HIV, get tested, donate to this charity. Um, and I finally owned it. And I realised, as ever, I'm happier campaigning. I'm happier, you know, uh, being true to myself, not having to hide anything, as it were. But I would be lying if I said that over the years... I remember I used to play, a, play the piano for uh, a stage school. I'll never forget. I'd, I'd just finished in the practice room... And um, I'd, left the, I'd left to go to grab the car, and I'd left my scarf or something behind. I came back in, and there was the wife of the idiot that ran it, cleaning the keys of the piano. I'll never forget that. Um, I said, what are you doing? She went, oh, um, and she couldn't answer me. She was, case, case, what are you doing? She, I, I, I'm just, um, we, 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 we take the piano home. I went, I know. I said, you can't get HIV from a piano. <laughs> um, you know, I'm aware... There are some very cool people out there. The idea of having an HIV-positive director is just rank because I'm, I'm not cool and sexy and, and you know, whatever. I, I'm just a man who's invested in this craft. And I, I, I've got mates in their 40s and 50s who I say, look, I'm HIV-positive, but I cannot pass the virus on and I will live a long and happy life. And they cannot believe it. Did it, did, did it take you a while to decide to go public with it was it something because you know it's, it's a big thing there's stigma you, you know you're going to get I don't know how in terms it, it would affect your, your dating life or you know romances and stuff you know like is it is it a big decision to go like you know there's things that you sort of keep obviously private and you know you share with the people that you need to but to go so public with it was it a big or did you know straight away like I need to go public with it or did it take quite a while to think about it it's always in my nature to be true to myself and, and to be true to my my morality and it's got me in trouble my whole life you know if i see something that's not right i'll say it and 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 i am the, of that personality type and um you know i it felt I, i'm not someone who has secrets you know you can ask me anything i'll answer you know it, I, um it has affected my dating life definitely i remember after being diagnosed, I was in a <laughs> I was in a gay bar when I was slimmer and prettier and whatever. And um I was kissing a guy on a dance floor and my friend fob marched me out of the um club and went, You cannot behave like this anymore. And I was like, What? And he went, You can't just go kissing anybody you like. I was like, I can. I mean, you're HIV positive now. Does he know? And I went, Well, he, yeah, but I like I don't have to tell, like, I don't have to tell people I'm HIV positive is the first thing. You went, well, I think you, sh you owe it to people. And you hear that and it stays with you for your whole life. Like, like what do you want me to do? Wear a bell? You know, uh, I've, I've got AIDS. Hey, you know, well, I've got AIDS, HIV positive, sorry. That's a line from As Is. That's where that whole <laughs> metaphor comes from. But, you know, I've got HIV. Hey, careful, everyone. Look, you know. Um, 
and 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 the shame that comes with people's sexual life is awful. You know, there are there are women who have got herpes. There are men with genital warts. There are people with birthmark. Like anything to do with sex, we just shame people. And um, you know, when your nan gets cancer, you don't shame her. So why the hell do we do that when somebody gets a virus? Oh, because you had sex. I think Alan Partridge. No, it wasn't it? Um, it was uh, Steve Coogan does the old joke on. Um, uh, the day-to-day, doesn't it? Where you've got good AIDS and bad AIDS. <laughs> you know. How did you get AIDS? Well, I got, I got AIDS through, uh, uh, through a blood transfusion. Oh, well, that's, that's good HIV. That, 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 that's good HIV. How did you get it? I had sex with a man. Well, that's revolting. You've got bad AIDS. And there is that belief. But, um, you know, anybody that wants to criticise me for having sex, you know, I did exactly what their parents did. What, what are the kind of... Um standard questions you the typical questions you'd get asked about it that are just like eye rolling or <laughs> i never eye roll because i don't believe there's any there's such a thing as is there a stupid question my, one of mine is who gave it to you who gave yeah. it to you so just so they can make them a little mental note not to sleep with them um and i always go i don't know because i don't i said I, I don't know and i doubt they knew they gave it to me anyway because this is the problem that people have with hiv they go um they think that gay people are not gay people. They think that, that HIV positive people are going out to infect, right? Now, with the medication I take, I cannot like if I cut my hand open. I think I've said this in rehearsals to you before. If I cut my hand open um, and I bleed on a table, I wouldn't be frightened to see you put your finger in it because mm-hmm. I'm something called undetectable. So even you know really decent um, you know high grade medical equipment cannot identify me as HIV positive, because the virus is smashed down with a combination of three different drugs, where the virus can only adapt to one of those to one of those drugs. So whilst it's adapting to one, the other two smash it to pieces, and the virus only exists in the canals of my organs, pretty much, or, or in deep, deep, deep tissue. Um, so uh, so yeah, uh, when it comes to um, so by the fact that I'm undetectable, by the fact that the, um, the virus is not in my blood and semen. Um, I love that. Was it the singing in the rain analogy that you've used before? <laughs> exactly what you've just watched. Um, uh, <laughs> God, I got into such trouble with the BBC for that. Um, uh, no, but, the, uh, the, but by it not being in my blood and semen. Um, the thing to remember then, if it's not people who are HIV positive who know their status and are on medication that is passing the virus on, who is? Because it can't be me. And it can't be everybody else who identifies as HIV that people point and say, be careful, they've got, they've, they've got AIDS. It's everyone who doesn't know their status. So the gay community often makes a lot of jokes about, you know, about being tested and HIV, etc. Often through insecurity by not knowing their status. And not just the gay community. I mean, it's not, it's another thing. It doesn't just go after gay people. You know, there are plenty of straight women I know um, who are HIV positive that I work with. And, but this is the thing. It's... The people who are passing on HIV, on HIV are people who don't know their status, which is why it's so important that everybody, everybody knows their status. Because I, it's so common, um, older gay couples or older straight couples, suddenly, you know, one of, their, one of them starts to get, you know, ill, not sure why, or they go to the hospital and they have a blood test. And they might have been together 20 years, but one of them was positive, they didn't have the test. And their immune system starts to fail, you know, and lo and behold, you know, quite serious health ramifications can happen. So even anyone in a long-term relationship, just know your status, just so you can sleep at night. 
And it might not just be HIV. You've got gonorrhea, you've got syphilis, you've got all the various strains of hepatitis. You know, if you're in a long-term relationship and you think, I got away with it, you don't know that. Do you think as well it's because of that, you know, you mentioned that lost generation, people, because it used to be a death sentence, didn't it, HIV? I mean, and people automatically, I suppose, think of Freddie Mercury in the late 80s when he was diagnosed. And they, and they because that was such a high-profile guy that had it, they almost kind of think, you know, that's going to, it ends the same way for everyone, you know. But it's not, the, obviously it's not the case anymore. It's, uh, yeah, I mean, Freddie's one of my heroes. Uh, and I think anybody with ears is heroes as well. Um Yes, I do think. I mean, the, the thing that everyone always refers to, talk, talks to me about is the Don't Die of Ignorance campaign, the tombstones that came in. There is a disease. It was voiced by John Hurt. Uh, I mean, it is sort of ironic. Thatcher, who I hate and is responsible for Section 28, was also responsible for saving the lives of um, more gay men than any other prime minister um, because she ensured when the AIDS pandemic hit that there was a radio campaign, a leaflet went through every household in Britain and there was a television campaign. You know, so Thatcher was responsible for that, um, <laughs> which is a real dichotomy for anybody that hates Thatcher as I do. Uh, but it was a good thing she did. Um, Reagan um, uh, never even uttered the words uh, uh, HIV, uh, AIDS, sorry, during his, his tenure as president. So, you know, we could have been in that situation. Um, yeah, I think people watch Philadelphia. I remember when, uh, I've told this story before, but uh, when I came out on the Dominion Theatre stage, an actress came up to me in sort of tears. Her makeup was everywhere, bless her. I was in the toilet with her afterwards. And she said to me, Andrew, I'll be with you till the end. And I said, I said that's quite a while away, darling. Because she thought I was going to end up like Tom Hanks in Philadelphia. Now, I could end up like Tom Hanks in Philadelphia if I don't take my medication. Um, and I should also point out that, you know, HIV is not a death sentence in 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 this country, you know. Uh, it still can be a death sentence in parts of the world. Um, there are people who cannot afford, including America, who cannot afford antiretroviral medication. There are those who don't want to take their antiretroviral medication because they don't feel like they've got a reason enough to live or, or their health insurance doesn't cover it. Uh, or they're in third, you know, third world or developing countries um, where AIDS is still killing millions. So the battle for HIV and AIDS is, you know, if it's if it's about beating the stigma, etc., that's in the UK, yes, I probably do a lot of work doing there, but there are great charities out there who are doing international projects, which is literally saving people's lives. Yeah. I mean, you say Freddie Mercury was a big inspiration to you. I mean, to most people, like you say, if you have ears, you know, you can't help but admire uh, Freddie Mercury. But as someone that looked up to him sort of in the music or performing art sense was it was it a comfort I suppose to you to to see someone like that go through it and he was really brave of it in terms of he was just although he was dying from it he just kept going and there's that really emotional video that was it the last music video those were the days is that it where you you see him literally withering away but he hasn't lost his his spark there's a lot of there's a lot of that footage which is even more haunting now because it's been cleaned up you know, I remember watching, because obviously we had VHS tapes and terrible old um, terrestrial television back then. A lot of that footage has been kid, and you realise actually how ill he was. Um, I was always frightened of AIDS. Of course I was. Because as a kid growing up, AIDS was the monster. Um, and I knew my history. So uh, I was frightened of it. But, and as I said, it's, very, it's nice that we've had the time to go through this, because it all ties all the stories together. 
the, the, one of the questions I get all the time is how did you get it? Um, and, you know, as, as, as somebody who's always been very eloquent and, and smart and educated, you know, I'm all of those things. Um, how does a guy like you get HIV? And the answer to that is, is um, when my mental health was as terrible as it was after being at Mount View, I didn't want to live, let alone care if somebody was wearing a condom or not. And, you know, and, and this is a much darker conversation to come into gay men's mental health um, or, or men's desire. Um, I wanted to be fucked because I felt worthless. I felt like a piece of meat, but I could feel something. And uh, to have that primal feeling again um, was so profound. It was almost animalistic. But it, if I didn't care if I was going to live, I also didn't care who it was. And I certainly didn't care if they had a condom on. Mm. And so what I'm trying to get at is the shame and trauma that are in a lot of people's lives manifest into terrible behavior at some point, can manifest into terrible behavior. Absolutely, yeah. And, you know, and it's why we've got to be, it's why saying things like <laughs> gay in the supermarket, it's just one little cat scratch, which is, you know, going to turn into a gaping fucking wound by the mm. time you get to your 30s, 40s, 50s, because you can only take so much. And... How do you combat that? Well, you do all the things that make you feel great. You drink, you smoke, you have sex, you do drugs, you um, you thrill seek, you go on holiday. You, we human beings want to be happy, mm-hmm. um, but if you haven't been given any kind of, I don't know, uh, framework for how your life is meant to be, well, then you're going to come out as not being quite lost, and you're going to bump into a lot of mistakes. And if those are issues to do with sexuality, we're not talking about it, where do you get the advice? And this is why talking as we are now is really important. Yeah, I, I, think, I think especially for men as well. Like it, men that seem to have a difficult time opening up. And it's, I don't know if it's that sort of, you know, that toxic masculinity feel where they feel, well, I have to kind of keep everything in about me. Like I said, even going back to when I used to have to keep the McFly CD in a, in a Red Hot Chili Peppers, Peppers album. Um, because, because, you know, because you, you know, you feel like you can't be yourself. And I think so much of it is when anyone's going through any kind of depression um, or whatever it is, it's so important just to talk. Because, you know, ironically, it's Robin Williams who plays a genie Aladdin. And, it, and it's just it's just that sense of suffocating in that lamp and then just to be free and just come out, ironically, as the genie and just to be free of that imprisonment of what those feelings that you're having. Lawrence, you're, you're just naming all my heroes. I mean, Robin Williams is one of the great, is one of my greatest Absolutely. heroes. Um, <laughs> Robin Williams, David Bowie, Freddie Mercury... Um, Oh, God. I mean, funny enough, uh, I was um, recently with um, uh, with a friend of mine. Uh, I'm saying friend, somebody that I'm having a rather nice time with at the moment. Um, <laughs> and, but uh, I, I, I insisted we watch Bicentennial Man, um, which is probably one of my favourite films ever made, you know. And I still weep when I first see Robin Williams because, you know... It just goes to show you can appear to have everything in the world and yet you can have that black dog. And, mm-hmm. and 
it's 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 cruel. It's I, I hate that Freddie Mercury should still be would technically be alive. I mean, I'm terrified because he could have gone on and done things like Strictly Come Dancing or something because he would have been an old <laughs> he would have probably been an old cantankerous old queen on Twitter by now. Um, who knows what Freddie would have been like? Um, uh, but you're right when he died. It, he he was such a face. You know, there's many other faces I can m- mention. Magic Johnson is another one. Um, you know, uh, uh, God, this, the list is just so long. It's so long. Mm-hmm. Um, Derek Jarman is another very important, you know, person that we lost. Um, God, I, I, I could go into it. I, I could go in and, and name. There's also so many of my heroes that are activists that... that that died, or, 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 and I'm not going to say worse because it's not worse. I'm not, nothing was worse than that kind of death, but um, it's also the friends I have that survived, and the survivor's guilt they have, and the, and the, the there's a lot of older gay men I know who all their, all their friends died. Mm-hmm. Do you ever have to do you ever have to come up? across any sort of stigma on, on, on Twitter. You know, we live in the world where trolls and everything like that. Do you ever have to deal with, do you ever have to deal with that? Today. Um, today, <laughs> okay. I, put, I, put a, I reported the tweet. Um, today I put out a video about, uh, I shared a picture of the six months worth of pills that I picked up yesterday. I had, if you notice, my arm is all rather bruised from blood, oh, yeah. all the blood they took. And um, uh, I picked up six months worth of, 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 and I said, tomorrow is World AIDS Day, and, you know, these are the pills that, that will help me survive for the next six months. And um, somebody said, this is why HIV, this is why you've got HIV, and it was somebody fellating a guy's dick underneath, you know, and you just go, empathy is not something universal. You see HIV, <laughs> you see an opportunity to 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 judge, to ridicule, Um and I worry about that person. A because how do you how do you how do you become that person that, that does that? But but I also worry like what the hell is your sexual health like? Like if you hear HIV and you think I know I'll I'll show someone sucking someone's dick, like you clearly never had your sexual health test te- you know checked. God yeah. knows, you know. Or maybe they've never had sex, who knows? And I, I yeah. hope and I hope that's the case. <laughs> I, I feel like this year is the first year I've noticed that there's just such a divide in terms of the right and the left. Like, you know, there's you, people have their views and everything. But this is this is the year that I've really felt there's just a huge gap in between, you know, people with different views, right and left. And part of that could be because of Donald Trump, because Donald Trump's made it as the leader of the president of the United States. He's been able to to almost uh, make it acceptable to speak a certain way about things. You know, you have the, the, the United States person, the president of the United States on Twitter calling people fat slobs, pathetic, or, you know, and when people see that and you're a follower and you're slightly right-wing and you're a Republican or whatever, you think that's acceptable to be like, well, my president does this, so I'm going to, I have the views of him, I'm going to support him. I, I've always said, uh, if anything, I think it's just that the silent majority isn't very silent anymore. Um, you know, and I, look, I, I, we, we've both lived this life. Um, there are perfect people who I've always identified as perfectly good, lovely people, um, who have very racist views that come out of nowhere sometimes. And you're like, what did you just say? Or I'll hear what somebody says about a woman, you know, and you're like, what? Be, what? Be, where does this go? And, 
it's almost like it's like being a naughty schoolboy, isn't it? I'll say this thing to shock, you know, um, because they've seen some stupid comedian say it, or they've heard a joke down the pub, and it's and you get an immediate emotional reaction. So I'll say that thing, and they're not really thinking about what they're saying. They just know that what they're saying is naughty, you know. Um, what's frightening is when you start getting people who have constructed careers out of hate, you know. Um, I've never understood... I mean, I've got friends who are Republicans. I even have friends that are Tories. Um, uh, but I've always, never, I've always thought... And I think this is, this is from really good teachers, actually. Like, I was always taught to be kind and accepting of others and live and let live. And, and those were things I was taught at school and by my, my mum. And I don't understand... I don't understand why, that isn't, why the left isn't everyone's default... And by the left, I'm not talking, like, far left. I'm probably left moderate and probably quite far left on some LGBTQ plus issues. But, um, like, the concept of, I don't know, uh, the, the, the idea of, of putting money above human existence is so alien to me. Mm-hmm. Potentially well, even, because I never really had any money growing up as a kid. Even seen recently with, you know, footballers get a lot of stick for the amount of money they're on. But then seeing something refreshing like Marcus Rashford you know, recently wanted to really make a, you know, step up and, um, you know, want to help out kids with their school meals and things like that. But he's been met with like a resistance of from our from our government. Like, why is this? Why is this not being supported by our government? That, that you know, a footballer wants to come out and make a positive difference because he remembers, you know, living on that council estate and his, you know, and his mum struggling and he can relate to those people. Marcus Rashford doesn't need the PR. He's a massive footballer, plays for England and Manchester United. And, he, you know, and he, he just wanted to try and make a positive difference, but he's being met with this um, hesitation by our government to, to do that. Because it means... Uh, I, 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 this reminds me of... Um, uh, this reminds me of uh, an actor that I... Uh, I I know um, his name is Gary Graham. He was in in Star Trek, and um, he's a Repu- he's a Republican. And I remember, oh, I thought Gary, I really thought we were going to clash. Really thought we were going to crash, uh, clash. Sorry, because I mean he's all like he believes in guns, and you know, and uh, I was like we're going to have nothing in common until we started chatting about. You know, and we, it ended up actually on the... We, we worked together for like three days and on the Sunday we were in my hotel room uh, drinking whiskey, talking about Shakespeare. What was important, though, is we, is we was, I was trying to understand where he was coming from because I was like, why? how is adding more guns to a situation going to make things better? Yeah, I couldn't understand that. But, you know, uh, and he said, well, you know, it takes a good guy with a gun to beat a bad guy with a gun. And I said, but what about when the good guy gets unwell? And he said, what do you mean? I said... If I sleep with your wife and you've got a gun, are you telling me you're not going to use the gun on me? He said, I can't guarantee you that wouldn't be the case. And I said, so do you see my problem? And he went, that's a really good point. And that's when you can start going, oh my God, a healthy, interesting discussion. We're listening to each other. We're listening to problems. What is the solution? The problem is is, is people, I think, I think it helps that I, I studied philosophy and religion, which is fundamentally an A-level, A-levels that are about constructing arguments. And the best way is to listen to both sides and come up with a, a proper conclusion. Those people who don't necessarily understand how important an argument can be are only going to um, are only going to see one side, and they're often just mimicking something they've heard because it's emotive. You know, um, get Brexit done. 
Yeah, absolutely. There's no detail to that. It's also not, you know, it, um, th- the phrase is like, um, uh, we're, we're, we're cutting the foreign aid budget, you know. People are thinking, all right, I'm thinking of things like my, my normal gross, my, my normal household budget. Yeah, why are we giving money to them over there when we need the money here? And you just want to go, because of what we've done to the very countries that we are giving the aid to, like Iraq, for example. You know, the, 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 the places that we have decimated. You know, and, and, and that's what I want. And that's, the problem is, is it requires nuanced understanding and it takes time. And actually on a tweet, you've got 240 characters to get noticed. And there are people who have built a career out of being noticed and stoking those flames. And those people, when serious things happen, the Pulse nightclub shootings, for example, um, acts of terrorism, murders, Joe Cox, all of these things, those people have blood on their hands because people snap. And Nigel Farage and, and Donald Trump, that they have blood all over their hands. And um, I don't know how they live with themselves. Yeah, well, it's just in, in America, you have to be 21 to buy a drink. But you can get way younger than that. You can go buy a machine gun, and you know it could just it just takes the, a kid that's a, a mentally ill kid that feels like they're being bullied or victimized, and think I've had enough. I'm going to go to school. And, you know, I, there was that kid that went into the Batman cinema and, and shot and shot people. Uh, you know, because he he felt like a you know, I don't know, but he he just felt like he, that was what he needed to do for whatever reason. And it's yeah, it's um, something that that frightens me the fact that it's still it's still not even up for debate it seems it's just like well no we're not touching it it, fright- it. it frightens me more just just the, the lack of respect for life you know mm-hmm. and 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 what's frightening is what's really frightening me is the um those in power that that are now one of the greatest things that's ever happened is is the, is the invention of cameras and cell phones it's it's things like seeing as as I saw, I regret watching the video, or maybe I don't. But but like seeing what happened to George Floyd, that that I will those images will mm-hmm. haunt me till the day I die. Um, and sadly, there will be those that would have celebrated that um, because you know again these stupid labels, the, the this fear of the other, this lack of education, and I I honestly believe one of the biggest problems with america is 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 education um mm. and a big problem here you know um yeah, and also and this this is the thing this, this goes back to being bullied you know the reason i have an interest in what it is to be myself and what it is to be with others and what other people's existence is like is because i've had a need and an, a need to do so because i was made not to feel that way there are people who have never been made to feel other because they're white, heterosexual, you know, working class, you know, they see themselves on television. This is this is this is the right way to do things, mm-hmm. you know, and then they see someone who's a different color or has a different partner or a different faith or eats a different kind of food. And immediately, you know, they are the minority. You know, you're not like us. And and tribalism persists. But the thing that's important is um is when you find your tribe that's when you can thrive because it's very easy to just identify a problem 
I, I, I don't know. Do, do, I, do I think there'll ever be a time when a human doesn't identify a difference in another human and says it's wrong? I think that is the human condition. But I think mm. the solution is to always surround yourself with those who are kind, those who have similar ideals, and work together. Uh, I really think that is the that is the answer. It has to be the answer. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, sort of going back to theatre, do you, obviously, do you, do you worry about the future of theatres um, going, going forward now after, I guess, a post-COVID life, you know? Oh, I think there's going to be some rubbish things being made, but I but I think the, but the things that I think are rubbish that actually people will love. I think, you know, theatres are going to have to play it really safe, um, quite understandably, because financially there are so many theatres are just ruined, producers are ruined. So I think, um, you know, they are going to do all they can um, to rebuild financially, and I think that means that there will be some quite. Commercial is not a dirty word. I've done commercial theatre. But I think there'll be some safe bets and I think there'll be some safe names. I I fear for those who have just graduated or come into the industry, how much opportunity will be there for them. And I, I know or I hope <clears throat> that this pandemic has thrown up some very interesting questions that theatre should be asking. You know, we've got global warming, we've got COVID-19. We're essentially killing our planet or our planet is trying to kill us. So I think theatre could respond to that in a very interesting way. And there are organisations that I hope will be taking on that challenge rather than looking at, you know, how can we how can we just put on something, you know, that, that, that the whole family can come and enjoy. Because theatre is fundamental. Theatre is always about asking a question. Um... And I, some theatres, of course, they are purely entertainment and that is lovely and I've directed things like that and I've enjoyed nights like that. But I hope, I hope when people are going back to the theatre, yes, support the West End, it's great, but book a ticket for a fringe theatre too. Go to your local regional theatre um, because, as I said, it's at the beginning of this, it's, it, it's our first nature, you know. We... As kids, we learn by watching. And as adults, we can continue to do so. And to be in an environment shoulder to shoulder, which we can't do at the moment, obviously, but, but when we can be shoulder to shoulder again in an auditorium, having a shared experience, watching something in front of us happen, it appeals to our actual nature rather than sitting on a sofa, perhaps enjoying a film, but you can always check your phone. You know, and it's always behind a screen. It's always, you're always distractible. Whereas, you know, it, it's very it's very hard to be in a political rally with the politician in front of you without properly listening. That's why. And also, I think you, you can express yourself so much better in a shared ex- space. You know, I've watched films which are really funny, but I haven't laughed out loud. But because I'm in a theatre, there'll be a moment which is slightly titillating. Uh, I'll guffaw because it's a release. It's it's we're all sharing this together. And I, I miss that. And I miss uh, I, I'm actually going into rehearsal room this week, a socially distanced rehearsal room or something, and um, I, I find it so surreal that f- for an art form that is fundamentally about the human condition, to touch each other is to be human. You know, sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worst. You know, but tell me a single story where someone doesn't hug or kiss or fight you know, or mm-hmm. embrace, like, like the moment someone is hurting, what do you want to do? You want to hold them, you know? So 
to go into a rehearsal room where none of that language is available, it, it's, it's going to be lovely to be with actors, but I won't be making theatre, I'll be making a presentation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this year, all of the streaming stuff that we're seeing is understandably presentational and therefore lacking in humanity. I think, anyway. But look, there are organisations that are just desperately trying to do anything to keep theatre alive, and I applaud their efforts 100%, and I, that is not a criticism. Um, but they mustn't call it theatre. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I can't wait to see you going back to doing what you do best, because, you know, I, I often watch you in awe of your of creative brain, Andrew, so, no, it's... Um, often with very little time and, and kids doing, obviously, Terror at the Sweet Shop, which people obviously don't know, which we, we, we are obviously doing together, which is wonderful. Yes, yeah, well, I can't wait to see you again and get cracking. Uh, but, Andrew, it's been great talking today. Thank you so much for sharing all that. We've covered quite a lot, haven't we? <laughs> but, yeah. You're going to yeah. release this as a, as a hardback book uh, in, in transcript. <laughs> Well, I think if anyone's good, it should be writing a book at the minute. It's you, by the sounds of it, mate. I think, I think one day, one one day when I'm when I when I've got far too much money and uh, the royalties <laughs> are pouring in, and I've got nothing else to do with my time. But until then, I'll 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 make theatre chat, do yeah. follow my causes, and just um, keep going. I guess. Yeah, well, brilliant, mate. Uh, thanks so much for coming on, and uh, yeah, can't wait to see you back doing your thing. So there we have it, a wonderful chat with Andrew Keats, and I'd just like to thank him for coming on and sharing his story with us. Um, a really inspiring guy, a really kind, friendly guy, and, you know, just someone that cares about people. And, um, yeah, over the last couple of years, I've really, really enjoyed getting to know Andrew. He's um, one of those guys that you, who has incredible energy, and you just kind of want to always be around that. And, uh, yeah, very, very creative, very good, uh, very nice guy. Um, but anyway... Um, thanks for tuning into the episode. Uh, thanks for checking us out. So if you haven't followed us already, please follow us on the Shapes of Stories. You can do that on Twitter, just at Shapes of Stories. You can follow me on Twitter, that, at, that's um, at LPrestige7. You can follow me on Instagram at Prestige Books, or just follow my Facebook page on Lawrence Prestige. Uh, thanks for tuning in, guys, and I'll see you again soon for another episode of the Shapes of Stories.